I, you know, only make it here once every four or five years. And uh, it's my great desire that you all feel connected to what's going on in Poland, that you know what we're doing, that you, you feel like we're on the same page. So um, our main ministry over the years has been church planting. Uh, Poland has thousands of villages and hundreds of cities with only Roman Catholic churches and nothing else. No, no gospel witness, no Pentecostal church, no Baptist church, no Brethren church, no Church of Christ. Lots and lots and lots of towns with just Roman Catholic churches. So when we went, that was our main goal. Go to a town, see if we could start a church there. If we could, go to another town and try to start another one. If you could, in one lifetime, make it to a third town and try to start a third one. Um, we had no idea if that's doable or not doable, but uh, that was the idea. We went with that goal, and um, God has been so good to us, and it's just been amazing to be a part of. We've been a part of three church plants, so two of those are just doing totally fine. Let's say 40-some members. If we wouldn't go back to Poland, we're, we're going back to Poland the beginning of August this year, but if for something would happen, we wouldn't be able to go back. Two of those three church plants would do just fine. They have members, they have elders, they're just doing fine. In 2012, we started the third one. It's just tiny. It's at the most seven people um, as far as baptized members. And then there's another handful of people right now that are attending regularly, maybe as many as eight more people. And so if uh, when we get back to Poland in August, we'll have a baptismal service. Some of those eight will be baptized and added to that church. So that's the that's the bulk of our ministry, 22 years, three church plants. Um, what we've gotten into over these last couple of years is something we never expected, and that is publishing. So uh, <clears throat> evangelicalism in Poland, all of the churches that we could consider evangelical in any way, uh, that makes up 0.16% of the Polish population. Not 1.6% but 0.16. So it's just a tiny fraction of, of the people in the country of Poland. And of course, you know, we in America, we have so many good resources. We have books, we have podcasts, we have YouTube videos, we have sermons, we have conferences, we have Sunday school materials, we have all this stuff. And the church in Poland doesn't have that stuff. And a few years ago, we thought that alongside our church planting, we could try to come alongside churches and um, get them good materials. So we've been doing that for three years and um, never expected that. I just didn't think that it would grow like it has. So uh, people want these materials that we're producing and they're being used in local churches um, really way more than we thought. So we're excited about that. And uh, I don't have any plans of like our changing our ministry from church planting into this publishing um, I just love being a church planter, writing a sermon every week, sitting down and doing evangelistic meetings with folks every week, and being a pastor of a small church. Uh, I'm not looking to get away from that, but we can add to that uh, this publishing deal. So thank you for partnering with us through all this. It's, it's not just a phrase that we say. It, it's, it's true. We couldn't do what we do there without our supporting churches here. And you do many things for us, it's true, but there's two financially. 
Uh, it's weird to talk about money in church. Every one of those things, we're talking about money in church, but we have bills over there, all these different things that we do. Every one of those things costs money. And uh, you guys are generous, giving your offerings on Sundays. Part of that money goes to pay your bills here. And then a good chunk of that goes to other countries and goes to people like us who are trying to preach the gospel in Poland. So thank you for your financial generosity. Keep it up. We need more. Uh, and then secondly, church planting is relying on God to do miracles. Like, it, it, it's not rational that we move to Poland, tell people, you're understanding the gospel incorrectly, you should understand it this way, change your religion from this to this. That, that's not humanly possible. Uh, we're not just relying on our good training or our ability to convince people to change. We've gone to Poland with this whole idea that we would share the gospel with people, people would come to Christ and then, and then uh, form small churches, depending that God is going to do miracles in people's hearts. He's going to draw them to himself. He's going to cause a new birth in their life. Then he's going to unite them together in a local church. Every step along there is uh, asking God to do this work, asking God to do miracles. So you praying for us and asking God to plant churches in Poland and asking God to draw people to himself and save souls in Poland is a vital aspect of this partnership. Uh, and thank you for praying for us for all these years. And please, however that works for you guys. I know some churches have, you know, prayer time at Sunday school or prayer time at Wednesday nights, or they send out the email and ask people to pray. However that works here, uh, please treat that seriously and ask God to do his work in Poland. Um, let's get to Philippians chapter one. Uh, a year or so ago, uh, I, I, I preach every week, you know, and I have three daughters and they've grown up with me being both their dad and their pastor and have heard me preach hundreds of sermons. Most probably have heard me preach thousands of sermons. A year or so ago, one of them came up to me and she was serious, trying to be respectful. And she said, Dad, you said today when you were preaching that that was your favorite passage in the Bible that you were preaching from. But you've said that lots of times about other passages. Like, how are we supposed to understand that what, what you're doing up there when you're constantly claiming that this is your favorite passage of Scripture? And I am in the habit of doing that. Not too ashamed of it. We're just going to go ahead and add Philippians 1 to that list. Uh, <laughs> It's a great passage. Paul uh, opens up in this chapter. He's pretty transparent about his sufferings, that he's going through some difficult times. And um, surprisingly, I find that encouraging. Um, it is encouraging to hear other Christians be real peppy and say, it's going to be okay, all is well. I'm, I'm doing great. You're, maybe you're not doing great today, but things are going to get better for you. That's helpful. I like that. But Paul does something a little bit different here. He opens up and he talks about that he's going through really difficult times. And that also is helpful. In one way, it helps us know that we're not alone. Each of us knows the difficulties we're going through. Sometimes you can come to church, you can look at everyone else, you can feel like ah, they've all got their act together. They don't have difficulties in their life. You're aware of the difficulties you have in your life. And so you can feel a little bit like 
This isn't the place for you. And then when you hear someone like an apostle, someone who authored many of the books in the New Testament, talk about that he's going through suffering, then we can feel that we're, we're not alone here. Introduction on the book of Philippians or any commentary and start to read a little bit about this letter that we have to the church in Philippi. Every single one of them would very quickly say, this is often called the epistle of joy. And even as we read chapter one, we'll about joy in the Christian life with two main themes. And those themes are suffering and joy. Let's try to figure that out a little bit. Um, I know we don't want to take too much time, but let me just take three minutes and I'll read the whole chapter. Start in verse one and go right through it. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of my grace. For God is my witness, my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, this is what he prays for them, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment, that you may approve things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, so those things that have happened to me, that's his arrest and he's imprisoned, the things that have happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, some of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. The other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, in that I rejoice. Yea, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn away, turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, now also Christ Jesus will be manified, magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I will abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy in the faith, 
that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Let me pray one more time quickly. Dear Father, we come to you again this morning declaring that we once again need you. Uh, I can't preach without you. We can't understand clearly without you. We ask that you would come meet with us, that you would help us understand this chapter well, and that you would use your word to change us. Use this chapter to do something in our hearts, your work that needs to be done in us. We ask that you do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. A baker bakes, a sailor sails, a farmer farms. Who you are affects what you do. At the beginning of these letters, Paul often, almost always, wants to talk about identity. In Christianity, our actions flow out from who we are. So it's essential that we know who we are. Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants, that's the word he chose to go with. I don't think many people in our modern world are going to choose a word like that to open up an introduction of themselves. Don't we all try to think of the most impressive title for our job? Like, no matter how menial the job is, the title these days is always impressive. We're always looking to put a spin on whatever the job is. We love to say, I'm a director, a CEO, I'm a manager, executive manager, team leader. Who among us is going to open up with saying, hello, I'm a servant. But the translation that we have, translating that Greek word servant, uh, doesn't actually help us feel how shocking this verse is because that word could easily be translated and possibly should be translated slave. In Greece, in the first century, there are thousands, millions of slaves one of the first and most important things you need to understand about this new person that you're meeting. Some people are free men. Other people are slaves. In this introduction, you need to figure out pretty quickly, is this a free man I'm talking to or a slave? And Paul wants everyone to understand, right from verse 1, he doesn't look at himself as a man who's free. His life doesn't belong to himself. He's been purchased with a price. He doesn't look at himself as the one who has authority, the one who is a lord. He looks at himself as one who's under authority, who's under a lord. 
The words of the Bible matter. And this word slave in verse 1 is worth all of us meditating on for a bit. In the very same verse, we have the super important word saint. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. The word saint means set apart. So they're all the people of the world. And then there's a different category. Those who've been set apart. They're set apart for God. They're his special people. They've been purchased by God for himself. They're not common. They also are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But they're also called sons and daughters of God. And we're going to see as we go through the chapter that they're set apart for God to use them on his mission in the world. God's at work in the world, and he's using his people to do it. In verse 7, we have this cool phrase. Paul says, I hold you in my heart. Not exactly sure I understand what all he wants to communicate there, but he loves these people. He planted that church. He shared the gospel with them. He knows them. They know him. He says, I have you in my heart. He wants to assure them that he prays for them regularly. Um, You have loved ones, uh, a spouse, children, family. Some of them maybe are doing well in life. Some of them aren't. Uh, Paul gives us an example here. He prays for those that he loves. Let's be doing that. He doesn't just pray really generally. Like, God bless them in Philippi. In verses 9 through 11, he lays out many things that he prays for them. Uh, As you pray for your loved ones, as I pray for my loved ones, let's not just pray general prayers. Let's just follow his example. If you don't know what to pray for your spouse, for your children, we can just plagiarize Paul. Let's just use this prayer. Let me read through it. You can see that there's there's, uh, like stages that build on each other. We'll go through it, starting in verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this prayer that all builds on each other starts with love starts with love. And he doesn't pray that this love would be given to them. So apparently they already have this love, and he's praying that it'll grow, that it will mature. At the moment of new birth, one of the things that happens is we're told that we're given a new heart. One of the things that that means is you start to love things you didn't love before. It changes how you feel about the things around you. You start to not like things that you liked before. But this new love put into you at new birth isn't automatically perfectly mature. It needs to grow. And Paul's praying that this love that they already have would grow. Um, Not only that it would grow greater, although that's certainly true, He says that it may abound, so grow greater. And then he adds words to that, more and more. But he also wants it to mature. He says, uh, 
that this love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So let's say that, uh, I don't know, someone says, I like meat. And you say, oh, interesting. What sort of meat? And they say, ah, just, just meat. If it's meat, I'll eat it. Old, moldy, good. I'll just eat meat. It's not too impressive. Like, maybe you should have a little more discernment. Like, these are the sorts of meats you like. These are the ones you don't like. Paul says, love more. And then he says, and have some discernment here. Recognize what Christians should love. What does Jesus love? What does Jesus not love? We live in a world right now, doesn't it seem to you that the world is communicating love is always good? Just love anything. Biblically, it's not nearly that simple. Let's say, for example, we have two women here, and one of them is feeling hate right now, and one of them is feeling love right now. Which one is righteous? Which one is being godly? Well, that depends. That depends on what they're feeling hatred toward and what they're feeling love toward. Uh, it's not always right to feel hate. It's not always wrong to feel hate. It's not always right to feel love. It's not always wrong to feel love. We have these verses in the Bible. One verse says this. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. We have this verse. Do not love the world or things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This prayer of Paul for them is very interesting. Paul is praying that you would love more, have greater love, and that these passions that you have would be mature, would be discerning. Um, he's praying that what you love today would change. That's good news for us. What you like today, what you prefer today, doesn't have to be that way for the rest of your life. Of course, we know that the Bible teaches that an important aspect of your new Christian life, as a person is born again and becomes a Christian, an important aspect is the renewing of your mind, that you think differently than before you were a Christian. But right now, he's talking about something that's even more fundamental to who you are as a person than your mind, than what you think. He's talking about what you like what you prefer. And he's saying that what you like today, what you prefer today, doesn't necessarily have to be that way for the rest of your life. Let's imagine that there's a child today who will only eat French fries and ketchup and refuses to eat anything else. We all recognize that that's not good, not healthy. We're hoping that one day that child will have enough discipline, be able to force themselves to eat some things that don't taste good to them. Force themselves to eat some vegetables. Force themselves to eat some meat. But that's not our ultimate goal, that they will grow to the point that they'll have enough discipline to force themselves to eat vegetables and meat. We're hoping that one day they will like foods that are healthy for them. 
that they'll enjoy it. As we're raising young children in the Christian faith, we don't just want them to grit their teeth and obey the rules. We're hoping that one day they will grow to the point that they love the standard, that they see the sense of the Christian life and enjoy it. Our preferences, our tastes can change. I think we're all too quick to make excuses for ourselves. Look at the Christian life and, and, and just cross off certain things. Ah, reading serious theology books, it's just not my cup of tea. It's not really for me. Coming to the Wednesday night Bible study, that's not my crowd. Not, not, not easy for me to do. Don't like it. Okay, fair enough. But what you like today and what you prefer today can change. Pray. Ask God to change it. Make yourself do some things you don't want to do. And some months from now, some years from now, you may happily do things that today you'd have to force yourself to do. There's good news in this chapter. The progression goes on. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Love will affect discernment. Discernment will lead to a change in your behavior. So that on that day when you stand before Jesus Christ and he looks at you, he will see a life that this verse says is filled with the fruits of righteousness. What a beautiful thing. He's praying for an entirely changed life. A new heart leading to a discerning mind, leading to changed behaviors and, and a new way of using your hands and your feet and your tongue and your eyes so that on that day when you stand before Christ, he will see a life full, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's a beautiful prayer for these people. But notice that it's not the end of all the steps. This beautifully changed life is the second to last thing in this progression. There's one more. Look at verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to what? To the glory and praise of God. All of this change is leading to that God would be praised, that God would be glorified. Christian, from the day of your new birth to that day when you will stand before your maker, you will be gloriously transformed. Not just on the outside, not just put up a new facade, but from the inside out. And who will get the glory for this transformation in your life? The one who's responsible for the transformation. Is there any habit in your life that you feel can never change? Maybe it's been there for 30 years. Maybe you've seen it in your parents and now you've seen it in your life. Maybe you've tried to change it before without any success and you feel now that thing that shouldn't be there is just always going to be there. God can change sinners. God does change sinners. We can't do it. Only God can do it. And then this verse is saying, and he deserves all the glory for it. That's why Paul is not just going to Philippi to talk to them. 
He's not just preaching to them. He's not just writing letters for them. He says very clearly, he's praying for them. That's key. Because he's saying, God, do this thing in their lives that only you can do. They can't do it. I can't do it in them. God, would you please change them? And then we will be quick to give you the glory for it. Um, that brings us to kind of a change in the chapter. His prayer for them ends at kind of the end of verse 12. And then 13 through the end of the chapter, he gets pretty autobiographical. And he shares with them that this work that God is doing in the lives of his people is glorious. He's going to change them. But it's painful for the people. As God is doing this work in Paul's life, it's nothing less than suffering in Paul's life. Let me read verses uh, 12 and 13. But I would that you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, being arrested and imprisoned, have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and all other places. So he's putting a very positive spin on the fact that he's been arrested and imprisoned. But if any of us would put ourselves in his situation, we would see that that is a difficult thing. Look at verse 17. Um, 16. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. He's saying that there are some people in the church we don't know if they're born again or not born again, but they're in the church. And now that he's in prison and away from the church services, they've taken this as an opportunity to lift themselves up and to try to discredit Paul. If I, I'm a church planner, if I put myself in his situation there, that's a difficult situation. Look at verses 23 and 24. For I am in a strait betwixt two. That means I'm in the middle of two things here, and it's hard for me to decide which is better. I'm stuck between these two things. I'm in the strait betwixt two. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So he says, things are so tough here. It's unclear to me if I'd prefer to live or die. If I die, I go to be with Christ. That's better. If I stay, I can be of help to you. That's more needful for you. I can stay here and teach and encourage and help you. Have you ever been that low? Where you look at things in your life and you think, at this point, I'm not clear on if I'd rather live further or not. Maybe you have. Paul's transparent with us here. And he tells us those sorts of thoughts are going through his mind. And yet, in that setting, we have verse 18, the last few words of the verse. And therein I do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. I want whatever Paul has there. In the middle of suffering, he is rejoicing and he's determined that he's going to rejoice. Let's take another couple minutes and see if we can figure that out. 
He immediately points to two good fruits that have come from his arrest. He says that he now has access to these guards that he would never have had access to otherwise. So he's been able to share the gospel with more people. And he says that other men in the church, now that he's arrested, are preaching the gospel more boldly. I'm not sure how the dynamics of that work. I'm not sure why that is the case, that he's taken out of the picture and he's arrested, so other men are stepping up and preaching more boldly. Nevertheless, that's what he says is happening. So he's quick to say two good things have happened. I can access more people with the gospel, and other brothers are preaching more boldly. This helps us see a key to Paul's joy. His life's goal is not wrapped up in his personal comfort or fulfillment or success, but in the building of the kingdom of God. That's a relatively easy sentence to say, but just think about that for a minute. His life goal is not his personal comfort or fulfillment, but in the spread of the kingdom of God. His life's mission is that Christ's name would be known and lifted up. And there is a direct link between the goal of his life and Paul's unshakable joy. Here's the key. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Don't let your happiness be built on something you can lose. Beloved, God is building his church and he will build his church. If you commit your life to that mission, the spread of the gospel, the lifting up of Jesus Christ, then you will be able to find joy both in times of health and sickness, in times of wealth and poverty, in times of great fellowship surrounded by other Christians, and in times of loneliness. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. According to my eager expectation and my hope that in nothing I will be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. His hope is unshakable. He just knows Christ is going to be glorified either way this goes. If he lives, Christ will be glorified. If he dies, Christ will be glorified. His goal is that through his life, Jesus' name would be lifted up. So his joy is unshakable. Okay, I can imagine that someone at this point in the sermon would want to push back. And they would say, granted, that's true. His joy is unshakable. But how does it apply to me? He's an apostle. He's a church planter. Somehow through his furthered life, the gospel would go out. Somehow through his death, the gospel would go out. I'm a normal person. I'm a kid. I'm a teenager. Not a church planter. How does that his example apply to me. Thank you for the question. <clears throat> I would respond by saying that God has made it very clear throughout the entire Old and New Testaments that he is the sort of God who loves to use the young, the unknown, the weak, the sick, Exactly those who no one would expect him to use. His kingdom will not be built 
through a handful of heroes doing a handful of gigantic heroic acts. It won't be built like that. The kingdom of God will be built through millions of unknown Christians. There are two institutions that God has ordained to build his kingdom. The small family unit and the local church. One family unit, one small local church. Through these two institutions, he'll build his kingdom. It's a glorious thing when two young Christians leave their parents' homes and go off and plant a new Christian family. It's a glorious thing when a small group of Christians leaves their church or churches and goes to a new community and plants a new church. But for most of us, we're already in a family. We're already in a local church. So the primary way that we can give our lives for the building of God's kingdom, give our lives so that Christ will be lifted up, is to pour our life into our family, pour ourselves into our local church. You have one life. Give it up. Spend it. Picture it as something in a pitcher that you can pour out and pour it out for your family, for your local church. That's how we can give our lives to his kingdom. These are not... When uh, one husband takes upon himself the responsibility to lead his family, it's a glorious thing. When one life, one wife takes upon herself the responsibility of following the lead of her husband, that's a glorious thing. For parents to take upon themselves the responsibility of educating their children, glorious. When a child, a teenager, gives up their life for the joy of their immediate family, uses their hands to cook and clean, uses their words to encourage, that's glorious. These sorts of tasks are not little, unimportant acts. They are literally world-changing. No local church is perfect, but we're all called to choose a local church in our community, submit to the pastors there, and pour ourselves into the congregation. What Paul says about himself, he says this, to remain in the body is more necessary on your account. When Paul says that about himself, that's not a sentence that can just be said about apostles. That's not just true for pastors or church planters. But the Bible clearly teaches that that sentence can be said for every single member of the body of Christ. I mean you. Your family needs you. Your local church needs you. Commitment to the family and the local church are the foundations of the Christian life. And in these seemingly mundane and unspectacular commitments, we join ourselves to the goal of the church of Jesus Christ across the continents and across the centuries. And we can also, with our brother Paul, Say with confidence, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my further life or by death. Let me pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, you know us. You know how weak we are. <clears throat> you know how quickly we are to constantly 
once again put ourselves in the center of this whole story and live our lives not for your kingdom and your glory, but every day when we wake up, we once again have a desire to live our lives for our own comfort and our own fulfillment. Um, We ask God that you would once again this morning realign our priorities so we see that we have been purchased by you, belong to you, and you have every right to call yourself our Lord and for us to feel that we have the responsibility of following your commands. Pray, God, that you will um, give each of us a deep desire to live and suffer and die not for ourselves and our own personal little goals, but for your kingdom and for the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would do this in our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.